Golf ball doesn't care if you're teeing it up on a Saturday with your friends or you're teeing it up in the final round of the Masters. The golf ball doesn't change. The laws of physics surrounding the golf ball doesn't change. What changes is your perception of your environment. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another hard train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. Matt Cermak is with me. What's up, Ev? Great to be back. What an episode. This was a this was a good one. I landed from Chicago late last night, and we're this is our second podcast we've recorded today. So we're firing it fun. up. Thank you guys for hopping aboard. If you're new and your golf game's off the rails and sick around the struggle bus, you you probably come to the right place. Okay. We help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. We unpack the mental game with PJ Tour Pros, best selling authors sports psychologists, and everyday golfers like you and me, and guys that are plus two handicaps that are 16 years old that just started playing golf five years ago. We got those too. We got that for you today and more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track. This episode of The Par Train, like every episode, is presented by our friends at Rowback Activewear, and they just dropped some pretty exciting stuff that you guys need to be aware of. One, gym shorts. Heard of it? Want to keep that body warm? Want to keep it active so that you're not a fat slob on the golf course and you get tired Jeez. by hole three, you probably oh should get, <laughs> you probably should get the gym shorts from Roback. Get in the gym with these new shorts. I've been with waiting the for these. Ev. Yeah, this is big. So I'm excited. So for clarity, their last shorts were kind of the crossover short, right? So you could wear them golfing. There were no belt loops, but you could wear them golfing. Right you could wear them out. You know, you could wear them with a polo. You could wear them with a tee. You could wear them working out. They were kind of the crossover. These are more true, lighter weight gym shorts, and they look sick. Playing okay. tennis, playing squash. Yep. Running. And what else the did they just drop? They just dropped the ladies' line. Women's line, yeah. Women's skorts. Sure. Which is a great crossover. Tennis, tennis, golf. golf. Yes. Yep. So um, if you're a lady listening to this or you've got a lady in your life, get those as well. 15% with the code TRAIN at rowback.com enter that code you'll get the discount or tap our bio at the par train on instagram you'll see the little get 15 percent off in our bio tap that it'll auto apply in your cart if you're wondering why the discount doesn't apply it means you've you've bought with them before it's a one-time code so if you need to borrow your wife's email or create a new sbc.global.net do whatever you need to do maybe your old university email works that edu maybe yeah <laughs> we're, we're talking to a high schooler here maybe you know, use a future college email, whatever you got to do or pass yeah, college email. Just do it. Um, so thank you to Roback as always, but let's get to this episode with Carter Strop. Carter is 16 years old. He's a incoming junior. I think yep. he said to in high school from Nashville, uh, went from started playing golf five years ago and he's a plus two handicap. Not bad. I think this episode will, um, I think people always love these episodes because everyone's wanting to know, like, how do I go from a, a 15 to a 10? How do I go from a 10 to a five? Carter really breaks down the stages of how he went from not being able to break a hundred to a four handicap and now to a plus two. And guess what? He's got his own podcast. He's got a perfect par podcast. Yep. He's had a lot of great guests. And as a 16 year old, I think is actually really valuable. We say in the interview, you caught me on this term after we went off air. He's not actually our first junior interview. We've had Bento Assis, who's like a five-time world champ. I think he's 13 or 14 now. Um, we had him on when he was... We had him on when he was like 12 or 11, maybe. 
Um, but Carter, I think is the first high school player we've ever had. Yep. And so hearing someone that has, you know, the pressure of being a plus two in high school, I know it doesn't sound like it, but I mean, you're trying to qualify for these junior events. You're trying to build a resume to get college coaches to look at you. You got to play in front of college coaches when they visit. There's a ton of potential perceived pressure here and real pressure that I think he's gained a lot of insights that anyone can benefit from, regardless if you're playing for something like a scholarship or you're playing in front of your boss or a friend you want to impress. Yeah. I thought it was an incredible episode, Ev, and what a fantastic young man. And one thing that really stuck out to me about him is how mature he is. Look, when you think of teenagers, yeah. we all were teenagers. It's it's a challenging time in your life to kind of keep your priorities straight. And just not only is he a hard worker at the game, but he's he's humble. He's recognized where he's been right, where he's been wrong, where he needs to pivot. And you know, we really get into some cool specifics because I love this as somebody who played growing up and got to play in college and really went through that same, I mean, amazing opportunity, but grind of junior golf to, yeah. to compete and to play well and to get recruited, to get a division one scholarship for that case. Um, I mean, my peak, talk- my peak in college was taking golf class and going to play nine holes for five bucks, actually for free twice a week, gave me one credit. Wow. Luckily I graduated on the dot. It was the last credit I needed. I took golf class. That was my heroes. Hope. Don't always wear capes. Uh, it's true. And success hoodies. leaves clues. That's true too. <laughs> you did have a cup of coffee with the high school team as well. We'll get into that for another episode, but um, I love the practice talk. We get into the course management um, coaching. He really stresses about finding the right coach. that can teach mm-hmm. you how to play, not just swing, but mm-hmm. uh, fascinating to go to talk about the journey from shooting a hundred right? To get into the eighties, to get into being a four handicap and then to where he is now, which is one of the best high school players in, in Tennessee. So absolutely fantastic episode. Won't be the last time Carter comes back and we're rooting for him. Yep. Absolutely. Summer. So if you guys get some value from this episode, which I know you will throw us a review at Apple podcasts and Spotify. Uh, it's really all we ask and it means the world. It really so does. Do us a solid, throw us that review. Tell us, you know, what this show has meant to you, how it's helped you. And uh, give us a follow at the par train, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok are the best places to do it. So uh, we post content there every day and it's meant to, you know, help you keep enjoying the ride and stay on track regardless of what's going on in your life. That's right. And uh, no matter if you're playing for a scholarship or trying to impress your boss, what are they going to do, sir? Just enjoy the ride. Hey guys, enjoy the ride. Take care. Carter Straup, as you said, off air, arguably maybe our first junior golfer on the show. Welcome aboard the train, my man. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. Carter, not only are you a pretty damn good junior golfer, from my understanding, we'll get to it, but you also host your own podcast, Perfect Par Podcast. And before we dig into your game, because as we talked off air, I want this to be a, a true mental game roundtable, really dig in your game, pull out some nuggets that people can take for their game, your struggles, your strengths, all that good stuff. But perfect par, what is a perfect par to you? It's the name of your show. What is a perfect par? What's is inspiration? That a perfect par? Yeah. In my mind, the perfect par is something everybody strives for, but you can never attain it. So it's the constant mm. journey 
from where you are now to how good you can be and striving for that perfect par is really one of the main reasons I play the game of golf is to strive to be the best version of myself that I can be. And do you mean throughout the round or hole by hole? Hole by hole, shot by shot, really, if you really want to break it down, making sure your processes are tight and you operate that all throughout the entire 18-hole, 36-hole round. I kind of like it, Ev, because when I think about par, Carter, when we all think about par, level, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it sounds like that's what – and that's what we're trying to achieve is to Mm -hmm. have that level head, that level mind, that level tempo. Is that part of it too? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's kind of that perfect round almost of just in your zone, fairways and greens and shoot par basically. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Love it. Well, Carter, give people some context. Okay. Like we said, junior golfer. So tell us your age, your year in high school, handicap. Let's start with you, where you're at in your golfing life and where your game's at right now. Yeah. So I'm 16 years old. I just finished my sophomore year of high school, so I'm graduating 2025. Uh, My current handicap is plus two. It's been right around there for a while, trying to get a little lower, but, you know, every shot, every you get better, it's even harder to get better. You know, plus one to plus two is a lot easier than plus two to plus three. So I've played golf for five years now. Uh, Ever since I started, I've played competitively. I really started my sixth grade year. They have a middle school golf team at my school. And so I started playing then, got right into it competitively, worked my way up through local tours, regional tours. Right now I'm trying to make my breakout more onto the national scene with AJGA and a few other big tournaments like that. But that's where my game is. My game's in really the best shape I think I've ever seen it, both physically and mentally. Uh, Over the last year or two, I've had a lot of different realizations within the mental game that have really helped propel me not only in my scoring, but also my enjoyment of the game and the way I view golf outside of the round. All right, Carter, good lead in. Let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, Evan and I were talking recently, we should have a, maybe a mini series called the breakthrough series. So talk about some of these breakthroughs mentally and and certainly physically as well. This is great. Another spoiler alert, Sarm. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead, Carter. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing for me recently, probably the thing that I'm still working on the most right now mentally in my game is focusing on playing good golf rather than trying not to play bad golf. And so for Mm -hmm. me on the course, that looks like, you know, let's say hole one, there's OB left and there's water right. Me a year ago, me six months ago would look at that and say, okay, OB, I'm having to re-T, water, I get to drop down there. So the miss is right. And so having that in my head before I even hit, I was either going to go right in the water, which is a one-stroke penalty, or I was going to snap hook it left because I was thinking about not going left versus stepping up to the T and saying, okay, I can hit a good shot here, hit it down the fairway. If it happens to go in the water, OB, oh well, but make a committed swing to a specific target in the fairway rather than focusing on what could go wrong. Yeah. So you're focused on your target. And which is by the way, what Dr. Bob Rotella told us, I've said this a few times on the show, but we asked him like one thing, doc, every golfer, one thing, what is it? And he goes, you focus on where it goes. I want you obsessed with where you want it to go. 
Because yeah. to your point, Carter, you know, we were joking in Chicago yesterday, Serm, about how talking with Brandon, we were at a buddy's house. And of course, we just started talking about the mental game <laughs> and his game. And we were joking about how hard it is in life to do anything when you don't have clear instructions. You think about a school project, Carter, for you. You think about, you know, in work or in life, if, if you don't building furniture from Ikea, yeah. whatever it is, if you don't have clear instructions, it's very hard to do. But so many times we don't give our brain clear instructions before we expect our body to perform a very hard motion, right? Exactly. And yeah. it's it's Good. magnified even more at the competitive level, right? Because sure. you're, you're worried about your score and especially uh, in the position I'm in and many, many juniors are in trying to make it to the national stage. It's so competitive. I don't think a lot of people realize how competitive the junior game actually is right now. Can you actually yeah. help? Because I've actually never asked Cermak this. I don't even understand. To me, it's just like you just register Yeah. in national so, tournaments. Like I, I didn't know that there is, it sounds like there's qualifying and levels. So help people understand yep. that context. So for most junior golfers, it depends a little bit on where you start and kind of your status. But for most people, they're going to have a local tour that's normally run by or with their state golf association that has tournaments all throughout the state that it's just like you explained, you know, you sign up for the tournament, you play and whatever comes of it comes of it. So then the next step up would be a, a regional golf tour. A lot of those are a little bit more exclusive. You may have to have some scoring average or handicap to get into those events. And there are fewer of them, but they're bigger fields, they're stronger fields, and they're scattered across the country. And then the next stage up, and I'm going to use AJGA for an example. It's basically the PGA Tour for junior golf. It is unbelievably competitive. So I'll give kind of an explanation of how most people would get into it. So you essentially have to win a regional golf event, which is a big deal, you know, four, five under minimum to win. But you win, you get a certain amount of status to get into a qualifier for AJGA. And if you don't qualify into that tournament with the qualifier, you lose your status immediately. So you go back wow. to, to step one. So you have to win another regional event to have another chance at qualifying. And let's say you do qualify for the AJGA. If you don't place top 50% in the field, you're going to have to go to next week's qualifier too. So you really have to win a regional event, play well in the qualifier to qualify, and then place probably top 20 to even get into the next event to actually start competing at that level. So from, from my understanding and speaking with a lot of mini tour players, like I know you have, it's very similar to actually the professional game, just in, in the junior space and it almost the, the winning harder. scores. It, it kind of is because and, I don't think the mini tour, it's not like you miss a tournament, you lose. That's true. I mean, obviously you don't gain, so you get behind the eight ball a little bit, but it right. it's almost seems harder. Is that yeah. fair, sir? But Carter, well, yeah. And Carter, would you agree that you've got to really be strategic in building out your schedule, your tournament yes. schedule, because yes. you're going to play, you'll try to play X amount of AJG events, but you've got to, you got your high school team. You've got, I don't know if you're playing, I don't know if the future collegiate tours around or IJGTs around, but you've got to play those kind of regional events you mentioned yep. too. So you're at least trying to build your resume. Yep. That's a big thing. You can't put all your eggs in just the AJGA. You hope that you can compete and play well. Right, you got you got to really think about the whole year from a scheduling perspective, like a tour player, right, or like right. a mini tour. And there's a system called Junior Golf Scoreboard 
that yep. compiles all these rankings points that more and more coaches, uh, college coaches are relying on to look at and more and more tournaments are relying on to get you into an event. So when you're scheduling your tournaments, you have to look at where am I going to get the most points out of and scheduling is a big deal. That's probably a, a two week or more process in the, the spring for me. This is so fascinating. This is a world I know nothing about, but first yeah. I, I have to go back for a second, Carter, because yeah. as always, Sermon laughs when I say this, but I always hear our listener in my ear and I could hear our listeners say, wait a second, this kid's been playing golf for five years and he's a plus two. I think that's everybody's dream, right? Yeah. To be, <laughs> to be, to give you context, Carter, one of our, until the Rotella episode, one of our best performing episodes was a coach in Chicago that went from a hack to a scratch in three years. So to go to plus two and five is in that same realm, especially for your age, help people understand the evolution there. You don't have to go like, give us year by year a little bit. Like what did you get it right away? Were there things you had to learn that were quote to Cermax point, a breakthrough moment where you saw great gains really quickly after you did X, like help us understand that evolution from deciding you wanted to play golf to now being a top junior player as a plus two. Yeah. So yeah, we'll start with year one. I know barely anything about golf. My family's not a golfing family. My grandfather played maybe three, four times a year. That's kind of how I got into it. And I grandpa? started out. Yes. Yes. Okay. I started out not with much skill at all. Like there are a lot of people I see, especially people who have played other sports who pick up a golf club and can at least, you know, get a nine iron in the air, 40 yards. I couldn't get it off the ground. So started there. I was so just kind of like roll bumping, yeah. Yeah. just rolling it basically. It, yes. Just like everybody I was else. fortunate enough to hit the ball most of the time, but that, that hitting, was about it. Hitting grounders early on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. And I was fortunate enough to find a really good golf coach in my area whom I, I still work with to this day. And he really helped me, you know, understand the fundamentals of golf, you know, left club path, open face creates a slice and, and really the basics of golf. He really helped me, you know, develop the very initial part of my game. So I'd say by the end of the first year, you know, I could go out from the front tees at a course and probably shoot 95, hundred, which is a big improvement from where I was. Oh yeah. And so the next year I actually grew quite a bit. So I started hitting the ball significantly farther. I grew a lot faster than most people my age. So I was hitting the ball a lot further than other people my age. And that became an advantage in the tournaments I was playing. And I was able to get a lot of really good success up front in my golfing career because I hit it farther and was playing from a shorter distance. And that allowed me to develop a lot of confidence going into further years of my career. And then probably around year three, the start of year three is when I first got my actual handicap. And I think it was like at the time 4.5. And ever since then, it's been very, very slow. And a lot of it is realizing that it's less about the physical game and more about the mental game and the strategy and the approach to that. For the most part, my game, my skill hasn't changed that much. Of course, it's improved a little bit. I've gotten older, so I'm hitting it a lot farther than I was. And those things do help. 
but my biggest breakthroughs going from four to plus two over the last two and a half, three years have come from mental realizations, you know, realizing that going for the pin every time is not a good idea. You know, playing golf swing, which is something else I've struggled with a lot, is not ideal and, and learning how to just get the ball in the hole in as few strokes as possible. So getting to four was quicker than most people, I think, because I surrounded myself with a really good team of experts. But going from four to plus two has been a very slow grind. So just to recap real quick, first year, grounders. Yep. Year two, break 100. Yep. Year three, four. Yep. Got our handicap. So let's talk about for a second, because I, I there's going to be a ton I know to dig from four to two plus two, but I want to spend some time talking about shooting 100 to being a four handicap means that you're breaking 80 shooting the seventies consistently. You're shooting high seventies consistently. If you play well, Yeah. right. Low eighties, high seventies. Yep. I think what you said, Carter is you probably didn't do what most people do, which is YouTube videos, going to the range, trying a bunch of different things, all super confused. You, it seemed like, keep me honest, you, got people that knew what they're talking about from the get-go so that you kind of save time from spinning wheels and working on stuff that doesn't help you. And you got on a plan that's right for you out of the get-go. Is that fair? Uh, For the most part. I I did start going down a YouTube rabbit hole. I went for probably four or five months because I wasn't patient with the results. We all do. (laughs) But but pretty quickly... I realized that's just not the way to go. You know, they're giving such generic advice, which I don't fault them for. They have to. They're trying to appeal to millions of golfers. But focusing on them was not the smart decision when I have someone in my back pocket who's helped other golfers get to exactly where I want to go and can actually help me on a more personal level. So I did come to that realization pretty early, which has helped me thus far. For me growing up, you know, you want like you found a good coach, but I thought it sounds like he was a coach more than just a teacher, right? And it was yes. like, how do I yep. play this game? How yep. do I think my way around the golf course? How do I, you know, weigh the good versus the bad, right? And and yep. then how do I get how do I get a good short game? So I am maybe talk about that too, because that's part of it's part of those jumps, right? There's a time when you were shooting 89, 90, right? And then you know now you're 82, 83. And a lot of that isn't because you know you hit it so much further. It's because you're understanding how to play the game. Exactly. And, and again, I was I was fortunate enough to get in with a coach who, who does that and who's helped a lot of golfers go and play at high, high level D1 schools. And he did. You know, we, we started, of course, with the basics, understanding ball flight rules, uh, what creates what type of shot. But almost as quickly as we did that, we were out on the golf course. Uh, we did a lot of pitch shots, a lot of short game, realizing that that's where you save your score, even though I've only come to accept that probably within the last year, you know, we did that a lot in the beginning. And so having a good coach and overall, as, as I've grown, getting a good team of experts around me that all talk to each other and, and are experts in their field has been very, very crucial in getting to where I am now. And Carter, we imagine that's a mix of fitness, nutrition, sports psychology. Is that 
what yeah, are you talking so, about that team for our listeners? So for me, that is for, for anyone with a team, I think they should put Aside it together. from your family who is obviously. Yeah, of course team. should okay. base it off of where they need the most help. So for me, that's yes, that's strength. That's a good physical therapist. If you happen to get injured, which I've, I've had to deal with an injury. So having a good person there, a golf coach, I don't actively work with a sports psychologist, but I do have connections and have worked with multiple in the past. So having them as a part of my team. And then I've also worked with a nutritionist in the past. I don't actively work with them now because I I feel like I'm doing well with it and I don't really need them every month, let's say. But yes, really trying to encompass, and then a club fitter would be the other one that would kind of round out my group. That was getting it. And I'm 35. That was getting that was important in the early in the 2000s, but that is that is so important now. My with yes. all the with, with the way clubs are designed and all the resources and like and what you're able to find out. Yeah, and I mean that's I think that's that's fascinating. But you need to at an early yep. age. Yeah, and and Carter, if someone's listening to this and they're like, I'm just getting into the game, right? So I'm really interested in how Carter got so good so fast, yep. but you know, they're more casual, interested into the game. They're not going right. to hire a whole team around them. Right. So right. from a sense of like going from shooting a hundred to a four, break down the ratios for me, if you can, of what things you think helped you get better the most. Are you understanding your, your mechanics more and kind of growing into what your swing is? And you're, you're kind of learning the basics of grip alignment, posture, and getting that stuff down. Is it strategy and course management? Like you talked about, is it more short game and saving strokes around the greens? Like obviously all of it plays a part, but from someone that really is like, okay, where do I start? What is most important for me to go from trying to break a hundred to literally being what most people dream of, which is a mid, you know, single digit handicap. What were the biggest keys for those gains? Yeah. So for me, it was basically all what what I would call physical skill. It was being able to hit the ball in the center of the face more often and understanding who I was as a golfer, you know, know thyself, Socrates, right? So understanding sure. my misses, what my body is able to do from a swing perspective and, and really going from a hundred to a four handicap. My team at that point consisted of my golf coach. I hadn't brought anybody else on So for someone trying to get from 100 to four, a good golf coach, I think is all you need. And and for me, what changed between shooting a hundred and being able to have a four handicap is just my physical skill. I hadn't really gotten too far into the mental game. You know, at that point I was still saying, oh, everybody says golf is a mental game, but it's not really, you just got to hit the ball. Well, my perspective changed on that quite a bit over the next two and a half years. Yeah. It's just understanding your misses understanding your swing tendencies, and then just learning the proper fundamentals and mechanics to allow you to hit the ball better. And Carter, I would imagine to take that a step further, learning how to practice. It sounds like your coach really instilled this into you. Yeah. How to break out your days, what to focus on. And you got to focus on everything, but. Right. And that's constantly evolving, but that is so important too for our listeners. And a lot of our listeners don't have the time you might have, but when you do have the time, what are you focusing on? Yeah. So my practice 
has evolved a lot over the last three, four years. So going from 100 to four was basically hit as many balls as possible because for me, I hadn't been a golfer in the past. So it's, it's understanding, you know, getting the feels for what needs to happen. And the more balls you hit, of course, the more kind of your brain can figure out, okay, I can make this quick adjustment to, to save this kind of shot. So it was hitting a lot of golf balls, a lot of putts, a lot of chips, not playing much golf, actually just really a lot on the range. But since then, you know, my practice has evolved to where I hit as few balls on the range as possible. And that's, that's for a few reasons, but mainly mentally, if I hit more than I need to, I start playing golf swing, which impacts my scores. So, yeah. When you start getting mad on the range and we've all been through it, <laughs> yeah. You know, you need to go do something else. Go putt. Yep. <laughs> go, know, home. Go, yep. go sit down and <laughs> go have, a, have lunch. And, but it's true. I mean, it, it's that balance. So as I've gotten older, I've really started to feel differently and look differently at sunscreen. I don't think anybody wants to get sunburned. I think up to this point, when I was younger, you know, my parents would say, make sure you wear sunscreen, make sure you wear sunscreen. And, and to me, it was all just about preventing getting burned. But now... As I've gotten older and I realized I went so many years without wearing sunscreen or not reapplying when I could have, I'm starting to see the effects. I'm starting to see sunspots, you know, in my outer cheek, under my eyes. And golfers are really some of the ones that impacted more than anybody because the sun's just beating down on us for four or five hours at a time, you know, and other sports don't last as long. So I think sunscreen is really as important, if not more important for golfers than maybe any sport or activity out there. And so now I think about it differently. You know, I don't want to damage my skin more than it already is. And I'm an ingredient freak, like I've talked about before. So I don't want to throw chemicals on my skin that are going to be harsh and seep into my skin and mess up my internal systems. Okay. So a lot of these sunscreens you guys probably buy at the store, like banana boat, copper tone sport. A lot of those sunscreens have been recalled because of the ingredient called benzene and other chemicals that just aren't good. They're not clean. It's not good. I would never put that on my skin. So let me be very clear. I would never bring on a sponsor to this program without vetting them and agreeing that their ingredients are basically Evan and Tara approved me and my wife, we are ingredient freaks. So our friends at Oars and Alps are back on the train because they have just dropped their best innovation. Maybe that they've ever done. I've seen people spray copper tone sport and banana boat straight in their face. And I cringe because not only is there terrible ingredients, but now you're inhaling them. It gets in your eyes. You might even ingest some of it in your mouth and it's disgusting. So what has Oars and Alps done? They've eliminated the terrible chemicals and they've created a little mini spray that fits in your carry-on and your golf bag that is designed to spray and mist on your face. It's the face mist. This is, I think, what everybody's been waiting for. Something that you can spray on your face. You don't even need to rub it in. Easy to reapply. And there's no excuse now to not put sunscreen on your face. So go to oarsandalps.com, O-A-R-S-A-N-D-A-L-P-S.com. Enter the code TRAIN, get 20% off, and get yourself some sunscreen and protect yourself out there. All right, let's get back to the show. You know, what's also interesting, Carter, is I remember, you know, people start playing golf for different reasons. For me, right, I stopped playing baseball 
my friends played golf and I hated not being good. I was used to being one of the best athletes of my friends. Mm -hmm. So the embarrassment actually fueled me to practice more than anyone. Right. I was like, Oh, yep. I'm going to get better than everybody. Right. Yep. But the funny thing about that is, is you can also, you know, when you're starting out and you're hitting shots that are 150 yards apart from each other, you think to yourself, I just need to learn basic. I need to learn how to hit the ball. So I don't need mental game. I need to learn how to hit the ball. But looking back on that, I was filled with a lot of anxiety because I was so embarrassed and I was so scared to make mistakes, which then ended up creating mistakes. I think what, if someone's listening to this and they, they've struggled like that, I think this is a great opportunity to maybe talk about how the mental game isn't just the thing you tell yourself before a shot. The mental game can be your club selection. Mental game mm -hmm. can be about how you play, what you think about, what where you're aiming at. And also to your point at the beginning of the show, are you playing to not miss or are you focused on where you're trying to hit it? Those are very simple perspective shifts that guess what yeah. can bring out the best swing. I don't care if you're a 30 handicap, your best swing. The goal is to remove the, um, you know, the blockages of that and allow that swing to come out. So how important, and that's where playing lessons comes in. You know, I remember that helped me early on when I started taking lessons, talk about how that stuff maybe played a role for you looking back. For me, getting to a four handicap, there wasn't as much of that. There was yep. a little bit with my coach. I'd go out, you know, play three holes for a lesson and yep instead of aiming at the pin, he'd be like, listen, we need to aim 10 yards left of the pin and here's why. And so a little bit of that combined with a lot of competitive experience early on where there were a lot of times where I hit a shot and was like, okay, that was really, really stupid there. Next time let's take less than driver and not try and clear the Creek at 270 down the fairway. Right? So there was a lot of failing early that allowed me to, to learn from that failing and then a little bit with coaching, but I really from four to plus two has been where more of my core strategy has come in. And a lot of that has been influenced by uh, Scott Fawcett's decade. And I know you've had him on, on this podcast, but yeah. his decade strategy system, which I don't follow to a T there are certain areas that I bend it uh, more towards my game, but the overall philosophy of it really helped me manage my game better on the golf course. How do you bend it? He claims that you should play the exact, you know, spot, the same spot, regardless of the environment. So if you're on the final hole and you know you need to make birdie because your other playing partner is three feet away, he says you still need to aim in the same spot. I think depending on the condition, you should follow more of your intuition uh, a little bit more than he recommends. Of course, he's a math guy, so... He's going to recommend whatever that is. But for right. me, there's a little bit more of a feel in, in that playing. And, and if something just feels right, if it feels right to aim a little bit more towards the pin, sometimes you just got to trust that. You, you definitely like, I think that's great. You need to at least explore what an instinctual intuition or feel might be and then weigh it out if it's, I got to do this or not. But if you're just yeah. like this all the time, 
you know, then you wake up after like, whoa, maybe I should have done, maybe I yeah. should have aimed at the pin there, you know, like with, yeah. a, with a wedge in my hand. Right. That, yeah. That's good. Well, if you're just setting out to follow a number, but you're not committed to that and you're doing it because you think you should, that might have an entirely different energy behind it and commitment level than something that you think you feel is right. Even though it might be against the book, it's like Serm tells me all the time. It's better to commit to the wrong shot than not commit to the right shot. 100%. So, okay. So it sounds like to me, just to recap, it seems like you found it in the dirt, like Tigers talked about from 100, yep. you know, shooting a hundred to becoming a four handicap, breaking 80. Yep. And also it's that. So you put in the work, you got the reps, but you did it with a coach. So the coach guided you on how to do it. You weren't yep. wasting reps. That's essentially how you got to a mid level handicap, which I think is really great for anyone to hear. Now let's get to the good stuff. And I don't care if you're shooting over 100 now as a listener, there's probably going to be things that helped you get to a plus two that can also help them get to an eight or a 10. So what then happened from going from a four to a plus two in essentially what, two years? Yeah. Well, yeah, basically. So my perspective started to shift on what how you shoot low scores and that's where the mental game started to come in a little bit more because what i was doing is i would go and i'd hit 250 golf balls on the range and i'd miss hit a handful and i'd think it was the worst thing in the world because in order to shoot a low score i have to hit 250 out of 250 dead perfect right where i was aiming and not knowing and realizing that the best players in the world on the PGA tour don't do that. And so thankfully this is about the same time I started my podcast and I was fortunate enough to have some of the best sports psychologists in the world. Many of which have been on, on your podcast, you know, and just ask them questions. And I started to realize, okay, maybe golf is a little bit more than just actually hitting the ball. And so that's, you know, started to use decades, saw, saw a jump there and really changed my perspective on it's not about hitting good shots. It's about hitting the shots where they need to be. So I was at a point when I was a four where I could hit it, you know, to a foot from 170 yards. And because I hit it a little bit in the toe, I thought it was the worst shot ever. And so it took a lot of work for my perspective to change to be like, okay, I hit it a little in the toe, but that's one foot from the pin. That's a fantastic shot. So it's important to focus on the process, but for me, it was also a little bit important for me to focus on the outcome and realize that good outcomes can come from poor swings. That's one of the big breakthroughs. And then similarly with practice, like, like we were talking about earlier, is I was hitting a ton of golf balls and that actually was creating anxiety for me because when I wouldn't hit one solid, I was like, oh no, I got to figure out what caused that one-off bad shot, even if the previous 40 had been perfect. And so adjusting my practice to be more on the golf course so I can commit to shots more, practice on certain types of shots, kind of removed that anxiety, but also allowed me to continue to excel in my skill level. That's great. It sounds like your post-shot routine had to change. Yes. And once you were able to do that, whether it was a good shot, bad shot, okay shot, or a really good shot that felt like a bad shot, right? that kind of changed the energy in your outlook throughout the rounds. It helps you probably conserve some energy too. Yeah, it did. And thankfully, I've 
I've always been relatively calm on the golf course. Like I've never thrown clubs. I've never <laughs> done any of that stuff, but it's almost internally, I would still get angry and frustrated with Stressed. myself. Yeah. Stress. That's a good way of putting it. And that's kind of gone a little bit away. And I'm very just kind of level throughout the round when I play, when I play my best too, that's something is I'm just very, okay. You know, DJ had that great quote. I think it was two years ago where he was like, I hit the ball, I go find it. I hit it again. And having a little bit of that strategy in mind has really helped me. You know, Carter, I felt, and I was kind of underage when I got to that plus handicap, a big jump for me was really around the greens. I was never the greatest ball striker to hit that far. So kind of had to make up for a little bit, but the ability to be able to hit almost any shot I wanted to around the greens and be able to trust it. Now that was years of work, right? Especially with a coach who really understood short game, but I thought that was, that was the difference. You know, that's, that's how I was turning those 72s into 69s. Talk about, maybe talk about that or your short game or what you've worked on there to see. Yeah. So it's always, you know, I've always been told as long as I've played golf, you know, short game is where you score. Right. But it honestly, it's been within this last six months, probably that I've actually really started to to recognize that because what I was doing is I was playing rounds where I hit 16 greens and shot 74. And that, <laughs> yeah. So, <The> worst. <laughs> uh, and, and I was doing that quite often. So I realized, okay, if I, if I'm going to shoot these low scores that I need to shoot to win golf tournaments, I need to be better with my short game. And so I've worked a lot, a lot recently, probably 80, 90% of my practice time has been on short game. And just in that. these these six months, you know, it takes a lot of pressure and anxiety off the other parts of the game because you can always, always save it. You know, let's say you hit your driver in the right trees, you punch it out to 30 yards short of the green, you can chip it up to 10 feet and make the 10 foot putt. And so it really adds confidence in the other parts of your game without having to make them better at all. And so I definitely think that's going to be a, a, a breakthrough moving forward for me, that realization. But that, that's definitely the key to saving bad rounds and going really low. Just out of curiosity, because and this is an ignorant question, because we've had Scott Fawcett on the show, but even after having Scott on the show, I don't fully understand what using the system means. So help me understand, Carter, like, are these just because I know the general philosophies. I know it's all about, you know, that that miss pattern and placing mm-hmm. that pattern on where it makes sense. And I understand philosophies like and principles with club selection off the tee with how far apart hazards are and yeah. that meaning to hit driver no matter what is most of the system like that where there's just general principles or are you like opening an app? and plugging in specific shots and specific moments. And it tells you exactly what to play. Like help me understand how that works. Yeah. So it, a lot of that is discussed further in the app strategy. Like if you actually purchase the app, but most of it is based on your subjective notes. So, you you know, you can take notes about the round and based on those notes, it kind of guides you towards the correct decision for you. Uh, there are very few things that are that are hard set. Uh, and then for me personally, I will kind of go through and, and make kind of what the standard shot would be. So maybe normally I'd hit three wood on this hole. But of course, if you show up and then you're 25 miles per hour into wind, 
probably going to need to hit driver. And, and so making game time adjustments, but it's good for me personally from a just the way I, my personality is to have a baseline to work off of. And, and that's how I use the system is it gives me a baseline. And based on how I'm feeling and the current conditions, I can adjust from that baseline. Arter, are you using Google Earth and satellite? Yep. Uh, yeah, so my brother does this. And it's, it's really helped this game. He's a top amateur here in Illinois. I used to play in the, on the Canadian tour. Talk about that. Yeah. So that's, I've all, almost always made a yardage book just because I thought it was cool that tour players had it. And sure. I wanted, I wanted to do that too. So I started off just drawing the holes. And, and when I played a practice round, making some notes, but uh, since then I'll, I'll go on Google earth for every tournament I play, regardless of if I've played the tournament before or not and kind of map out where the landing areas are, where the miss areas are, where the miss areas aren't, and do as much of my free round work as possible through Google Earth. So my practice round is more focused on how the greens are reacting and how thick the that. rough is. Because when before I did Google Earth, the practice round was so consumed with, okay, what do I need to hit and where? That you, miss, you miss the point of it. Yeah. What did you miss? I mean, I so when I've done practice rounds for much less <laughs> big events, but you know, member guests and stuff. And I totally, yeah. am, I am picking up on what you're saying. Cause it's the whole it gets round. overwhelming. Yeah. It's, it can be overwhelming. Cause usually by the way, in member guests, which more people can relate to probably mm -hmm. there's an, there's probably a money game in the practice round, whether it's a Stableford or something. So you're prepping, but you're also competing. So there's the pressure of like, yeah, I probably shouldn't hit that club again here. Or what club would you hit here? It's, it's mostly club selection angles. And that's really it. Which is big. Yeah. But, yeah. But help yeah. me understand what you missed by doing more of that ahead of time. By doing the Google Earth stuff yeah. ahead of time, that allowed me the freedom in the practice round to hit more shots. And of course that wouldn't work with the Stableford and competitive practice round, but instead of saying, okay, you know, taking my range finder and shooting all these distances to decide if I should hit driver or three wood, I have the baseline of let's say driver. So I hit driver and then from the approach play, I can throw down two or three extra balls and see how the ball's actually reacting into a specific green. Here in Nashville, it's very grainy Bermuda on all the golf courses. So there are lots of areas where like that. <laughs> yeah. Tricky. Uh where greens Sherm doesn't like that. <laughs> I'm a bent guy, Chicago. You know, I like it pure. <laughs> I'm a big yeah. Poana guy, you know, <laughs> West Coast. So keep going. Yeah. So the greens just they sometimes they react differently on the same course based on on where you are and, and where how the water's running off. And so having the ability in the practice round to focus more on hitting shots and learning from where maybe you made a mistake is better for me than saying, okay, I need to hit driver here. Oh, okay. Now where's the best angle to be here? And having that work ahead of time allows me to play more of a round of golf and just take the the misses and the failures from that round of golf and not do them in the actual round. So I went to a golf event recently and realized that if I go to a golf event that doesn't do this, I don't think it'll ever live up. I don't think it'll ever be good enough. Okay. Olakai had us out in Orange County for their launch event and they did the coolest thing. They set up a pop-up shop and everyone who attended the event 
got to go shopping and pick out a free pair of shoes. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. Now, you should have heard everybody talking throughout the event, how comfortable these shoes were, how they're their favorite shoes they've ever worn. There are so many different styles, whether you want kind of a traditional, cool, clean, white leather look that can cross over to off the course, or if you want something a little bit more athletic and different materials and trail looking shoe, they got it all. Okay. I started wearing sandals, Olakai sandals, really the only sandals that can fit my wide flat feet. My buddy called them flappers growing up. Olakai were the only leather flip-flops I could ever wear. I love them. They're so comfortable. And they even make golf flip-flops now. Yes, that's right. Flip-flops you can wear to the pool while also there's little tracks underneath that'll keep you stable if you want to go out there wearing flip-flops on the golf course. Aloha golf is a real thing. It's right in line with enjoy the ride and everything we're about. So tap the link in our show notes or linked in our bio on Instagram at the par train. If you tap that link, you can get yourself free shipping on any Olakai golf shoe. I'm telling you, people were blown away by how comfortable these shoes were. Everybody looked good. Everybody felt good. So hopefully one day you'll be able to make it to one of those events too, because it was pretty sweet, I'll say. So tap that link in our show notes or on our bio on Instagram at the Train. Get yourself free shipping. Let's get back to the show. Carter, talk about, you know, when you're scoping out a course, this is good for our listeners. Look, you got to know where the trouble is. There's yep. nothing worse in golf. Let's say if you, you you take too much, a little too much club, you know, on the second shot and there's water over the green, you didn't know that, right? Yeah. You got to know where it all is, but yep. so you can map that out and be prepared, but it's really about, all right, I know where the trouble is, but this is where I'm going because it's easy to think, well, I know where the trouble is. Don't go there. Right. Right. <laughs> you've dealt with this. We all deal with this. You've, you've had some breakthroughs with this, but being prepared, but also staying on offense. Yeah. So I always identify, especially around the greens, where the miss areas are along with where the problem areas are, because depending on where the pin location is, a lot of the times you can, you can shape the ball or aim closer to those miss areas that would allow a bad shot to be able to get up and down because a lot of these courses, especially the nicer courses and the bigger competitive events, if you're short-sighted, you're hoping to make bogey a lot of the time. Sure. So, and, and you can hit a good shot and, and short-side yourself. So playing, you know, picking out the right targets that give you the best chance of getting up and down if you do miss, because we'll all miss eventually, is really critical. You almost created an area yeah. which can take the pressure off from such a small target. Like, all right, you know, I've got 15, 20 feet to play with here. You know, yep. for for you or for maybe more of an amateur player, I've got, you know, 10, 12 yards or something. And, and a great example of that is is watching when I was watching the Masters, they have to miss it in the right places. Otherwise, they're they're in a terrible situation. And of course, Augusta is much more extreme than most courses any of us will ever play. But it's, you know, I saw Cameron Young hit a shot on 16, it landed three feet from the pin and ended up almost in the water. Right. Mm-hmm. So understanding that a really good shot can be 30 feet left of the pin. A really good shot can be just short of the green. A, yeah. a really good shot doesn't have to be right up next to the pin. That's what we were talking about with Brett McCabe. Just because I'm going to a more conservative target doesn't mean I'm still not being aggressive and doesn't mean that I still can't make birdie, mm-hmm. right? But you can make bogey if you get on the gas you know, at the wrong time. Yeah, and, and a good thing that's been for me is with identifying all these problem areas, 
is identifying and realizing that some holes are going to be birdie holes, some holes are not going to be birdie holes. So based on the conditions and, and where the problems are around the greens, sometimes I just have to accept that this is going to be a par hole. And a par is a very, very good golf score uh, just because it doesn't set up for my eye or, or there's too much trouble and, and you can't go for the pin. And par is just as good as a birdie. But realizing that ahead of time allows me to minimize my frustration. Well, and to stay aggressive too, right? Yep. Like, you know, who knows? Maybe you could make a birdie. But we were, Evan and I were talking about yesterday. Like, it's just easy sometimes when you see the tough holes, like uh, to get defensive when you really have to even focus harder to be on the offense, but just maybe to, Hey, it's a, it's a, it's a two iron off the tee, right? Maybe it's a layup on a par five. That's a balance. That's tough. Speaking of that, I want to get Carter's just for a second general question. I want to get Carter's take on this term because yesterday we didn't get a chance to ask Brett this this morning because we were really focused on Rom and his mindset. But yesterday we shot a video uh, in Chicago where we, we called it the commitment challenge, right? We were seeing if we could break 80% commitment ratio, committing on 80% of our shots, could we shoot a better score? Like, that's our goal. Let's see if we can do it. And an unusual thing happened, Carter. It was actually quite difficult to calculate commitment sometimes. And what we mm. realized was it was very easy to commit on a plan and know if you weren't committed on the plan. Maybe I should have hit eight here instead of seven. Maybe I wasn't committed to the angle, the type of shot shape, whatever it was. You kind of know. I was kind of in between clubs. I went into that shot anyways. But a committed swing was much different, much harder to know if I was committed or not. Sometimes, especially on a bad one and especially on a good one, a good one. You might say, well, of course, it was a committed swing. I hit a good one. This is really big for a lot of what we talk about on the show. And tracking commitments is a great, it's a game within a game. And so how do you think about that? Does, have, have you struggled with that to figure out how do you know if you're committed? And, and what do you think a commitment is? How do you define a committed swing? Yeah. So for me, a committed swing, as you're kind of talking about, starts with identifying your goals for the shot. So let's say shoot the pin with the range finder. It's 145. Look at my pin sheet and yardage book. The ideal spot is three yards left and, and three yards short. So I got a 142 shot. And let's say my nine iron goes 150 and my pitching wedge doesn't go far enough. So I'm right in between clubs, right? So I have to decide, am I going to hit a hard pitching wedge or a soft nine iron? And depending on tendencies as a player, you can choose whichever fits more there. But I think if you are fully committed in the process before the shot and you're like, okay, this is the shot I need to hit. I'm going to hit it here. I know I can do this. And you actually step up and that doesn't change nowhere in the process. You're like, eh, maybe I should have gone with pitching wedge. It's going to be a committed swing. You know, maybe 1% of my shots I'm committed through the process and don't make a committed swing. And most of the time for me, that's been, you know, in, in bad weather conditions or other times when it's really hard to focus. So if you're focused and you're committed all the way through the shot, it's going to be hard for you to make a not committed swing in my opinion. So you're saying it's kind of the plan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As you were right after that round and you're reflecting about those moments that weren't your greatest moments, you dig into what my plan was. 
And on those in-between numbers, right? And hopefully you don't have too many around, but when you do, you feel like God's going against you today. You got to be better to make the right decision, you know, because being in between clubs, it stinks, you know, yep. and often we make our big numbers from that because we don't choose, we don't dig into what we do best or we're just not thinking clearly. Right. Yeah. For, for me, you know, realizing where I'm least committed is a really good guide on where I need to practice. So yeah. for me, yep. if That's I'm big, the longer I've hit my clubs, you know, the, the more distance I've gained, the bigger the gaps in between the clubs have gotten. And so I have what I call my stock half shot, where I basically get a little bit smaller stance and kind of just play a little bit more of a, a choppy fade. And that ends up being about the middle number. So if my seven iron goes 185 and I need to hit it 177, I hit my stop half shot with my seven iron and that's going to go about the distance. And so that's been a, a real key in staying committed, even in, in between yardages. I love what you said, because so many people think that practice is about being perfect. You mentioned that with your old range sessions, right? You get nervous. Mm -hmm. It creates anxiety. You see bad shots, but practice is actually, we've talked about that on the show before practice is about gaining comfort. So gaining what familiarity. you're yeah. And what you're doing Carter, which I want everybody to really put in their pocket, their back pocket is you have become a detective and you have started to become more aware of, okay, what are shots I'm not committed to? What are shots that I'm uncomfortable with? What are shots that I'm struggling with? All right. I'm going to mm -hmm. go practice those because I'm going to get more comfort and have more confidence the next time I play versus what you may have done when you were shooting a hundred to a four is you start to get down on yourself. It's more judgmental. It's less curious. And then you don't address those things in practice. You just go hit balls because yep. that's what you think you should do, or it's fun or, or whatever. So it sounds like to me, the big theme is you put in the work and you had guidance to get to a, a decent golfer, which is yep. a mid single digit, but to get really good, it seems like you've done less from a, a sheer practice volume, but yep. you've gotten smarter with what you practice, how you practice it. You've removed anxiety. You removed the pressure. You've accepted that you hit bad shots, but you're planning around your bad shots. You're planning around the misses. Yep. So it seems to me you are playing golf in a much calmer, more objective, curious state than anxiety, pressure, obsessive, you know, yeah. is, is that fair? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the goal, you know, I'm still shooting for today. You know, most of my bad rounds come from ones where I'm focused on my golf swing or I'm not yep. committed to shots. And I think a lot of people, because I was in this boat underestimate their skill level because the shots where they're not committed, they hit a bad shot. And I think it was a physical error when actually it was just, you weren't committed. It's really hard to make a really good swing when you're not committed. And so for me, when I started working on actually committing to the shot and, and giving my best swing to the, the area I chose, all of a sudden I started hitting better shots without changing my physical skill at all because I was good enough to hit those shots. I was just so conflicted stepping into it that my body didn't know what to do. So it split the difference and ended up with a bad shot. Yeah. And Carter, it's, we always get, it's so good. We always got to be working on our plan. Mm-hmm. 
always got to be working on a plan. I always got to work on staying present because yeah. that can get you in a position to be more committed. Yeah. Yeah. Like term, tell your story yesterday with uh, how you bailed out left. Oh, on the par five. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, so this is a par five. It's a dog leg, right? It's about 550 into the wind. So long hole. And then the miss is left off the tee, you know, might be able to get home in two if I hit a good drive, but you know, the water's kind of in your mind. And so, you know, I didn't make the greatest swing. Now you might ask me, well, Matt, we got to get that water out of your mind, but I didn't make the greatest swing, but I just missed in the left rough. And that gave me a chance to play the hole. Right. So it's all to me, that was at least I executed the plan and missing it in an area. And the more I practice now, I got to go back to the, to the range, right. And think, all right, what's going through your head, Matt? You don't like that trouble, right? Because you got to hit, feel like you got to hit it hard and your misses, your miss goes out to the right, mm-hmm. but you executed enough to give yourself a chance and that can get better, but I'm sure this is what you're working on every day. Yeah, exactly. You know, most, most of my range sessions, and it's hard to, to do this sometimes because sometimes you just want to hit a bunch of balls. And sometimes that's fine when outside of practice, if you just want to hit some balls, have have some fun. But when I'm actually working on something, going through envisioning a shot and going through the entire routine, you know, mental chatter and everything and going over that and practicing that you're going to hit fewer balls, but it's going to be a whole lot more productive. Yeah. It's intense too. You're just, mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to simulate. Yep. Now let's finish on this. I know we got a few minutes left, Carter. I think it's really interesting as a junior player to quote, build a resume. You could argue that building a resume to make your future, right? The kind of future you want from a golf standpoint and life, golf is going to potentially help you get a scholarship, right? right? It saves a lot of money. So the pressure to quote, build a resume I would argue is just as high as a mini tour player trying to make a living. It's a very similar thing, but the difference is you're 16, you're very young. And so let's talk about the pressures of that because Serm's been through it. How are you? Cause everyone can relate to this, regardless of your top player trying to get a scholarship or you're playing with people or your boss or whoever you are playing for your livelihood. In a sense, you want to paint your picture of your future how do you know that? And you also get out of your own way. How do you play well, regardless of that pressure? And Carter, before you answer, a lot of coaches are going to be coming out to watch you. Right. And if they haven't already, so bake that into it. And this is great. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, thankfully, this really hasn't been something I've struggled with that much. So a few things I, I like to keep in mind is one, I put, absolutely everything I I have into practicing, playing, doing as much as possible. And so I'm throwing everything I can at it. So if something doesn't work out and I end up playing at maybe not my top choice school and and I play at a different school, at least I can look back and say, there is absolutely nothing else I could have done. I did everything I could. And then another part of it too is you know, realizing that I'm not playing for my livelihood, even though it could feel like that and can mm-hmm. feel like, you know, I'm the world's going to end and I'm not going to have enough you know, money, let's say, uh, if I if I don't play well, it, it's not like that. And so having that in the back of my mind that ult- at the end of the day, being a 16 year old in high school, I'm being I'm able to play a game at a high level that I really enjoy and 
I'm doing everything I can for it. And so having that in the back of my mind and knowing that the world's not going to end if I don't play well has really freed me up to to play my best golf I can. And, and when a coach comes and watches me, you know, I I just stick to my process. It, it, yeah. The golf ball doesn't care if you're teeing it up on a Saturday with your friends or you're teeing it up in the final round of the Masters. The golf ball doesn't change. The laws of physics surrounding the golf ball doesn't change. What changes is your perception of your environment. And if you can, I've been fortunate enough to be really uh, good at not changing my environment. The environment doesn't change that much. And if it does change, I make sure that change is for the, for the better. You know, maybe if I'm a little more stressful, there is a way to turn that stress into more focus and maybe even getting a little bit more distance out of your drives. And so I think for me, it's controlling the perception of your environment. And what I always said to myself, and you're going to have tons of coaches watching you. Hey, if coach comes over to watch me, I must be doing something right. That's you know, true. That too. <laughs> yeah. and, you, and you just have, that's fun what you want, that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what you've like, always wanted. Right. So like, I want to, yeah. I want to recap something because I love what you said, Carter. And the fact that you're saying this at 16 uh, is great. And it's really great for your future. And I empathize with it because I started my quote, mental spiritual journey around the same age. So you got a bright future. But what I will say is I want people to really take a second and think about the feeling and the weight of the way I asked the question and Carter's answer. And this is really the power of the mental game and really in life that people I don't think realize because a lot of people will say, yeah, but it they, they latch on to a thought that might not be the most productive for them to achieve whatever they want to achieve. But they're so wrapped around the, the the feeling of it that they say, yeah, but that's the truth. And for me to say anything else wouldn't be the truth, right? That's why I like this idea of productive thinking more than positive thinking. Because what mm. Carter just did is he walked you through a new perspective that has so much lightness to it. It's almost excitement versus dread, pressure, right? You're just controlling what you can control. And by the way, you're putting in the work. Rory said it in his pre-round presser at the Masters. Preparation leads to comfort for me. When I know that I put in the work, I can play my best because I know that I couldn't have done anything else. And by the way, a lot of people don't put in the work because it's easier to, quote, fail if you're not giving it your all. Because, oh, it's just a side thing. You know, it's not a big deal. We've talked about this. Yeah, Yeah, we talked about it on our own show. When we started to treat this show like a full-time gig, it became a full-time gig. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, I think that's really, I think that's a big takeaway for everybody is how you reframe a situation to enable yourself to perform. And Carter, I think you could maybe just also comment on the foundation you've built around you. My dad always said, it's like when you're picking a college, it's not about just golf. You're going to have bad days on the course. You might not make a tournament. You got to have something to fall back on the town, the campus, the right. people. And I, I think you're building that now around you in high school. And, and that's so important to have things to fall back on outside of golf. Yeah. We're going to ask you this and then we'll let you out of here. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you think is worth saying for the everyday golfer that's trying to get better? Or is there something that we talked about that you think is so important that you want to reiterate for people before we go? Yeah, for, for the for the everyday golfer, I think a few things. One, find a coach that you trust 
and that works well with your personality. I think you're you're half the battle there and realize a lot of your what you think are physical mistakes on the golf course. You know, you you're, you didn't swing it right. I guarantee you more than you think of those are just lack of mental commitment. And if you can work on actually committing to the shot, you're going to hit a lot fewer bad shots without improving your physical skill whatsoever. Love it. Great. Well, Carter, this That's was great. great. Perfect par podcast. Yeah. With Carter Straup. If you guys like this conversation, I'm sure you'll love his podcast as well. This was so great. I'm so glad we could get you aboard the train. Yeah. And, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Keep us posted with your season. Yeah. Keep us posted as colleges starts to uh, come into play. We'd love to see where you're, what you're looking at and cheer you on. I will. If you're an AJGA in Chicago or LA, let us know. Come will watch do. And cheer you on. Definitely. Awesome. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Carter. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Evan. Real quick before you hop off the train, I got something for you. It's called The Train of Thought. It's our new email newsletter. Would you like to get one nugget, insight, or thought that we're pondering every week that could help keep you sharp and help your mental game? Go to thepartrain.com and subscribe to The Train of Thought newsletter today. It's really the best way to enjoy the ride. See you guys.